that Joseph was released when he was asked to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He said Pharaoh's dreams meant there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Then he proposed a plan for storing food for surviving the famine. Pharaoh then made him prime minister of Egypt. His brothers had come to Egypt to buy food. He recognized them. They didn't recognize him. And he tested them by keeping Simeon, one of the brothers, captive, telling them they needed to bring their youngest brother back if, he would prove, if they would prove they weren't spies and to reclaim Simeon. And then he had their money put back in their sacks. They realized they were in trouble when they found the money in the sacks. And so their father, Jacob, forbid them to take Benjamin, the youngest, back to Egypt or to Egypt even though they had told him that the Lord of the land, as they referred to their brother, who they didn't know was their brother, Joseph, um, said that that would be the way that he would know that they were honest guys. And that brings us up to chapter 43. And in chapter 43, we see that the famine is very severe. Jacob and his family had eaten all the grain that they had gotten from Costco or from Egypt. Jacob says, go again and buy, get, buy us a little food. It almost sounds like, hey, just run back to Egypt and pick us up a bite to eat. What do you say? <laughs> Judah says, the man, and they'll call him the man again and again in this, uh, through these three chapters. The man warned us not to even think about coming back without our youngest brother. Send him with us and we're good to go. If, if you won't send him, we won't go. Now Israel... It's kind of interesting at this point that um, Jacob is referred to by his covenant name, Israel, complains, why did you tell him that you had a, a, another brother? And um, Israel is not about to risk losing his remaining favorite son of Rachel, of his favorite wife. Just so you know, I have a favorite wife. Her name's Patty. Actually, she's the only one I get to pick from, so it makes it pretty easy. She's not in the room, right? (laughs) They say that the man was asking all kinds of questions about our family. How could we know he would tell us to bring our brother down? Now, in uh, verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10, I think we might have that up on the screen. Then Judah steps up and says to his father Israel, Judah is becoming the leader of the family, send the boy... And the boy is about 30 years old, by the way, so he's not a little boy. Uh, send the boy with me that our whole family may live and not die. I will be a pledge of his safety. In other words, I'll be a guarantee. I'll be a surety. From, from my hand you shall require him. You can hold me responsible for him. If I don't bring him back, I will bear the blame forever. We could have made two trips by now, he says. So let's... Let's get going. So Israel then tells them to take some of the choice fruits for a present to the man. He says, take a little balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. The best trail mix that we have in Canaan. (laughs) Take double the money. Take back the money that was returned to your bags. And take also, you kind of size your brother. Benjamin, and go again to the man. Now, we, verse 14, I think, is on the screen. 
At last we hear Israel, Jacob, express words of trust in God. Up to this point, he's been, why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this to me? Woe is me, woe is me. You've been there before, haven't you? The me story. But now he's, he's exhibiting a little bit more faith, and he says, May God Almighty, El Shaddai, the one whom, by whom Israel's father Isaac had um, committed him to back when, and, and how God had revealed himself also along the way to Jacob earlier in his life as El Shaddai. He's the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God, the God who is faithful to carry out his promise through um, his people. May El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man... And may he send back your brother and uh, your brother and Benjamin, your brother Simeon and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So it's kind of like he's exercising faith. He's resigned to trusting El Shaddai, God, um, and it's in whose hands Benjamin's life is anyway. It's kind of like Esther's: "If I die, I die; if I perish, I perish." It's. It's in God's hands. So they take the, the present. The brothers take the present. They take double the money, and they take Benjamin, and they go down to Egypt and stand before Joseph. And we'll, we'll look at these passages uh, that talk about this from verses 16 and through 18. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were were brought to Joseph's house. Uh, And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, and so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Not very trusting guys, are they? Kind of guilty conscience thing. We'll see that. Verses 19 to 23. So they, they went up. Uh, to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. It's interesting that Joseph's steward recognizes this, and he's speaking maybe more than he knows. It's in God's providence. He has given them treasure in their, in their sacks. He says, I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the steward brings them into Joseph's house, and they get ready for Joseph's coming. He gives them some water. They wash their feet. They feed the donkeys. And they're, they're ready to, um, uh, to, to meet Joseph, whom they don't know yet as Joseph. When Joseph comes home, the brothers bring in the present that they have with them, and, and they once again bow down to him. They, they did earlier back in chapter 42. So his dreams are coming in full fruition here. He asks if their father is well and if he's still alive, which I guess if he's well, he's still alive. They say he's both well and still alive, and they bow down again. Then he sees Benjamin, and he says, Is this your youngest brother you told me about? And before they even answer, he says, God be gracious to you, my son. And they're probably thinking, What is up with that? 
this prince of Lord of Egypt um, blessing our, our, our brother. Then because of his compassion for his brother, Joseph had to exit the room to find a place to cry like a baby. So he does. He washes his face. He comes out and controls himself and says, serve the grub. That's Egyptian talk. The Egyptians separate from the Hebrews. They can't eat with them because it's an abomination for them to mix it up. And then Joseph had them seated in birth order. And they're still shocked at that. They look at each other in astonishment. And then comes another test. Benjamin's portion is five times as much as any of theirs. It's like when I go to a restaurant and, and I order something and I get like a, they tweeze it out on the plate and the person next to me gets a, like a snow shovel full. I hate that. So how will the brothers respond who so hated the favoritism their father had shown Joseph? Well, evidently they passed the test. It probably helped that they drank freely and were a little bit buzzed. That's what it says. Joseph commands his steward to fill the men's sacks with food, putting each man's money in the sacks, and to put his special silver cup in the youngest ones. That's Benjamin's sack. The guys leave in the morning and and they have only gone a short distance when Joseph tells the steward to intercept them and confront them about doing evil by stealing the cup. So the steward catches up with them and confronts them. The brothers say, no way would we do that. Are you crazy? How would we do that? We, we brought money back. Um, we return the money to you that we found in our sacks before. Why would we then steal silver or gold from your master's house? The brothers are so sure that none of them has done this. They say, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be your servants. So they say, you can kill the guy who took it, and we'll all become your slaves. They feel there's no risk, so they, they make the stakes high. The steward knows, of course, who the guilty one, so to speak, is. And he knows Joseph's will, so he says that only the one found with the cup would be his servant. He searches each of their bags, and the cup is found, of course, in, in Benjamin's sack. They tear their clothes in horror, and they go back to the city. When Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house, they bow down again to Joseph. Must be getting kind of dizzy from all the bowing down. And Joseph says, what, if, what is this you've done? Do you not know that I can practice divination and I can track your every step? Judah says, what can we say to my Lord? How can we show ourselves innocent? How can we clear our guilt? This is in verse 16. I think I might have it on the screen. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are all your servants, your slaves, both we and the one in whose possession was the cup. Why does Judas say this? He doesn't mean that God has exposed their guilt in stealing the cup. He knows they didn't do that. Judah is talking about the guilt which has been upon them ever since they sold Joseph into slavery. 
So the guilt is still upon them. This is God's way, says Judah, of visiting their past sins upon them. They withheld mercy from Joseph. So back in uh, verse 21 of chapter 42, they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when, when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So they didn't show mercy to Joseph, and now God's not showing mercy to them. This is a graphic illustration of God's justice. And God is just to do this. The wrongs one does will be repaid somehow, some way, somewhere. Always, in some way or another. All of, all of our sins are, are going to be paid for some, some way or another. Joseph says, in effect... No way am I going to punish all for what the one has done. Only the dude that in whose possession was the cup shall be my servant, my slave. The rest of you can go in peace, in shalom to your father. This sounds more permanent than the first time, whereas before he said, you can get Simeon back if you bring your younger brother back. This time he says, I'm going to keep your younger brother, and he doesn't give them any recourse to get him back. So what will the brothers do? Will they again agree to sell the slavery a son of Rachel? This time when the price is not 20 pieces of silver like they sold Joseph for, but their very freedom, and without any recourse offered to free Benjamin, is there any other choice but to return to Canaan without him? Judah, the one who took the lead role in persuading the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, now takes the lead role in seeking to persuade Joseph to free Benjamin. He doesn't have time to produce free Benjamin t-shirts. Free Benjamin. When they had plotted to kill Joseph before, and then they put him in a pit, and then they sold him, they did it in hatred because Joseph was the favorite of their father, and they hated the the favoritism of, of their father for Joseph. Now Judah pleads for the sake of, the, of his father and his father's love for Benjamin. He mentions him 13 times in this appeal to Joseph. And it's the longest speech in Genesis, and we're going to read it. So here we go. And don't get confused. Every time he says, my Lord, he's talking to Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph yet. And Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will will go down. 
for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. And I've never seen him since. If you take this one from me, and harm happens to him, you'll bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of, of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah pleads for Joseph to accept him as a substitute for his brother Benjamin so Benjamin can be with his father. Jesus, the descendant of Judah, was our substitute who bore our guilt and took our punishment, whose sacrifice God the Father accepted for us so we could be with the Father. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ became our substitute to bring us to God. Back to the storyline. Joseph has heard enough to know his brothers have truly changed. He cannot control himself before his Egyptian cohorts. He doesn't need to go weep in private now. He no longer needs to to keep up the mask of a, of a hard-nosed Egyptian master. So he orders every, everyone to leave the room except his brothers, and he weeps loudly. He says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? I think he had that made pretty clear, but... Is my father really still alive? He's very old, and maybe he doubts that um, he just isn't sure. Could he possibly still be alive as old as he is, or, or were you guys making that up? But his brothers couldn't talk, understandably so, for they were dismayed at his presence. Of course, the guy they threatened to kill, then sold into slavery, has now the power of life and death over them. He's the master of Egypt. When they had been speaking Hebrew among themselves, they thought he couldn't understand them because he was speaking Egyptian through an interpreter. And now they're going back and thinking, what did we say? We talked freely in front of him. Joseph, I think this verses 4 and 5 are on the screen in chapter 45. He says, come near to me. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph plainly states the evil that they did. You sold me. But God used or meant it for good. He says, you sold me, but God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. He doesn't say they weren't responsible for the evil they did. Nor is he saying that God's sovereign goodness was compromised in using their evil for good. He's not trying to to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He sees God's good purpose working even through human evil. In verses 7 and 8, we see Joseph's perspective is far more shaped by God's purpose than by his brother's evil. Verse 7 says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. He just really completely takes God's role as as the overarching uh, purpose here. In verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, like Pharaoh consults me, almost like a son to a father. And Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Is your theology Joseph's? You say, I don't have a theology. If you think anything about God and how he works with people, you have a theology. I hope your theology is Joseph's because... It's an important undergirding and overarching theme in in the Bible. God is sovereign and will accomplish all his good purposes. In spite of man's evil that is against him, in spite of all of our mess-ups, in spite of all the evil done to us, in spite of all the evil we've done, God will accomplish his purpose. God using man's evil for good is how we were saved through Christ's death. So we see this in a couple of passages. In Luke 22, 22, Jesus is saying of who would turn out to be uh, Judas, for the Son of Man, that's him, goes as it has been determined by God. So he's going to the cross. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So it's been determined by God that Christ is going to be killed by sinful men, delivered up by religious men and put to death by secular men at the hands of religious men. And yet, woe to that man. He's responsible, but God planned it. And Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.23. He said, this Jesus, he's preaching to the religious people of his day, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God planned it, he foreknew it, he foreordained it to to happen. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God planned it. Are they at fault? Yes. But, But if they're at fault, then did God plan it? Yes. The Bible just holds these two things together. And it's it's throughout Scripture. So what is the good that that was accomplished? Well the general good, and back in Joseph's story The general good that God sent Joseph to do was to preserve life uh, throughout the region by providing food. 
the specific good, the redemptive good that for which God sent Joseph was to preserve God's covenant people, his family, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, as a remnant. And that, that remnant is like a buzzword throughout Scripture of those who are rescued from a disaster that God saves his people and rescues them from what they deserve to be punished by. So God sent me, says Joseph, to preserve you as a remnant, to survive the catastrophe of catastrophe of the famine so the people of God's promise continue and so the line of the Messiah the Savior King Jesus is preserved so he says Joseph says hurry and go tell my father that God has made me Lord of Egypt I have just the place for you and the family and for all your flocks and herds to dwell in a place called Goshen in the land of Egypt There I will provide for you that you don't come to poverty in the remaining five years of the famine. Take a good look at me. So he, they're still, I mean, imagine these guys have not seen him for 20 years. And they at best think he's he's just a slave and maybe he's dead by now. They have no thought they're ever going to see him again whatsoever. And so they're still in the shock phase and he's loading all this news upon them. So, hey, take a good look at me. You're not hallucinating. I didn't. Spike the food. You must tell my father of all my honor and, and of all you've seen and come back soon. Then he embraces Benjamin and, and they weep on each other and he even kisses all his brothers and weeps on them. And now at last his brothers have the courage to talk to him because ever since chapter 37 they've not been able to speak a word to him so they hated him and they didn't talk to him and they haven't seen him for years they don't talk to him and now that reconciliation is starting to break through the communication opens up again have you noticed that? if reconciliation is in process you start having good communication if not, you don't so Pharaoh then he confirms Joseph's um, plan and says yeah, you can have the best of the land of Egypt that's amazing how much trust and how much value Pharaoh placed in, in Joseph's service to Egypt. Yeah, your, your family can come here. Uh, I'll send moving vans. So he does. Joseph gives them provisions for the trip and, and a change of clothes. He gives money and five changes of clothes to Benjamin. So he's still heaping it on Benjamin. He loads up all kinds of goods for his father for the return trip. And this is one of the best lines in the whole story. Don't quarrel on the way. Don't you fight. Now, that's kind of funny, but it's actually pretty realistic if you've ever had kids in the car. But even more than that, it'd be pretty easy for them to start blaming one another. Hey, you were more at fault than I was. No, I was more at fault than you were. No, you were more at fault than I was and all of that. So that's pretty easy to imagine how they could find things to quarrel about arguing over who gets the best clothes and all of that kind of thing. And so they, they reach their father and they say, Joseph is still alive. And his father, his heart stops. Because they say, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all Egypt. Jacob says, oh, isn't that nice? No. No. His heart becomes numb. It quit working, literally. Can you imagine? I mean, he's so sure that his son was killed and ripped to shreds and 
to hear he's still alive after 20 years and that he's the ruler of Egypt? But when they tell him the words of Joseph and he sees the wagons, the moving vans, his spirit revives. My son Joseph is alive. I will go see him before I die. Jacob's response to hearing Joseph is alive is is like that of the disciples when they were told Jesus was alive. Shock, unbelief, which then turns into overflowing joy. So just uh, two or three closing thoughts. As God sent Joseph to save his people who didn't deserve to be saved, so God sent Jesus to save those who didn't deserve to be saved. Although we have sinned against God, God sent his son, his favorite son, his only son, Jesus, to save us from sin by exchanging our sin for his righteousness. He died the death we should have died. Also, Joseph believed that God used the the evil that they did to him to accomplish good for him and through him. This freed Joseph to forgive them and to do good for them. When we forgive people for doing wrong to us, it's not that we, we realize, oh, after all, it wasn't wrong, it wasn't bad. No. Sin is really sin, and wrong is really wrong. When we forgive people for doing wrong to us, we don't do so because what they did was not wrong after all. We forgive because God is good and just and sovereign over all, and God saves. And as he saves us and as he does good for us, we're free to forgive and, and know that God will carry out justice whether he punishes the unforgiven who don't receive the forgiveness in Christ or whether he has placed all their punishment upon Christ. There was a, a Russian pastor who, uh, during the communist years, was imprisoned and he was tortured by a, a guard. And the guard did really vile things to, to him that I can't even, don't even have the desire to share in this Sunday morning s- setting. He gets a, an appeal from an old lady who says, Can you come pray for my son? Her son is middle aged. He comes to the house and finds uh, this middle-aged man lying helpless in the bed before him. And it turned out that he was the prison guard who had tormented and tortured him and fed him vile things on toast. He said, Oh Lord, do not let me fail you now. He prayed beneath his breath without identifying himself or or saying anything that might give away the connection, the pastor granted his former tormentor forgiveness in his own heart, helped the old woman administer the medicine to relieve the man's pain, and prayed for her son, and then returned home, awed by a new and deeper understanding of God's grace. In fact, he was so overwhelmed by God's grace that the experience changed his life and the lives of his family members. So, Forgiving people doesn't just let people off the hook. It's trusting God and his saving purposes. And that's, that was big in Joseph's sight and in his heart. And then finally, isn't it amazing how God in his wise providence is able to arrange world events 
influence the hearts of rulers and family members to bring about repentance and faith in him. He's at work in all of our lives, constantly leading us into repentance and faith. Or at least the opportunity is there for that. And he's able to do it. Thank God that he doesn't just leave us holy to the consequences of our sinful choices. Thank God he doesn't leave us to the consequences of our sinful choices only. Sometimes he allows those to, to afflict us. But so, he's so into delivering, so into bringing about repentance, so into forgiving. He's anxious and eager to draw us into repentance so we can be reconciled to him, enjoy fellowship with him, and live forever with him in the new heavens and new earth. Let's pray. Father, we want to have a faith that embraces you for all that you are. We have our biggest problem, Father, is our own sin that has separated us from you and and left apart from your grace and your mercy, we would have no hope. But in Christ, because he is the greater Joseph, the greater Judah, because he was our substitute, he was the pledge for before you for our salvation, we have sure hope of eternal life and ongoing repentance and growth and faith in Christ. Thank you for that incredible gift. Father, in spite of the evil done to us, you are able to work for good, bringing about good, your good pleasure, your good purposes. So help us, to, Father, to, to trust you where we've been wronged, where we've seen evil, whether it's impacted us directly or uh, it's just the evil we see in the world. We, we know that you are bringing it to a good end because of Christ. And it is what you have to work with, a fallen world that's full of evil. And we're amazed at all the goodness that's still here, but all the more we, we long for the, that day when uh, evil will be completely contained and, and righteousness will reign. So give us, Father, joyful faith and hope in all that Christ has accomplished in us and for us. Because in your providence, you are able to use evil even to accomplish good. We praise you for that. In Christ we pray. Amen.